looking uh, primarily at uh, Genesis 4, verses 5 through 16. Um, but to begin, let me read this, uh, this section uh, for you. Genesis 4, I'm going to start with verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive uh, your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you, but you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. To review where we were last week so we can put this in perspective, we're looking at two sons. We're looking at Cain. We're looking at Abel. We're looking at two offerings. We're looking at an offering of the fruit of the ground. And we're looking at an offering of the flock, the firstlings of the flock, and the fat portions thereof. We're looking at two religions. That may not be immediately evident, but we're looking at a religion of self-reliance, a religion of self-justification, a religion of determining what in one's own mind is acceptable to the Lord. And we're looking at another religion, which is a religion of faith, a religion that realizes that sacrifice is necessary, a religion that wants to honor the Lord with appropriate sacrifice and worship. And we're looking at two entirely different outcomes. The Lord had regard or respect for the offering of Abel. He did not have regard or respect for the offering of Cain. And this led to two entirely different outcomes. And there's actually two entirely different lineages, two different spiritual lines that come out of Cain and Abel. 
But Genesis 4.3 sets the stage for us in the bringing of these offerings. And again, one is of the fruit of the ground, and the other one is from the best, the, the firstlings of the flock, and the fat thereof, which the Lord respected. And we can look back at the background of this. We'd have to go back to Genesis 3, verse 21 to be specific. But you may recall that the Lord clothed Adam and Eve uh, with skins from an animal that he, the Lord, had sacrificed. And so blood was shed, and the covering that the Lord provided for Adam and Eve was entirely different than what they had developed on their own. You remember what they had done is they had picked leaves and whatnot and constructed their own covering. And that was not acceptable before the Lord. The Lord actually took the life of an innocent animal, sacrificed it, and took that, the skins thereof and clothed the uh, Adam and Eve so that they would no longer be ashamed, so that they would no longer be estranged from God, so that they would be covered. It's actually a picture of justification where they're covered. And, and you realize that the definition of justification is an act of God's free grace uh, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And, and so this is a picture of that. This is a sacrifice of, of one life for another. And it's a covering. God regarded the covering as a surrogate, so to speak, of righteousness. They had no righteousness of their own, and he provided a covering for them. All of this, of course, anticipates the work of Christ. It's a picture, and it, it looks forward to that. The, the animal itself, of course, had no saving merit. Hebrews tells us that by the blood of bulls and goats, no one is justified. Of course, we know that. But the Lord has used any number of uh, emblems or um, images or representations uh, over the course of biblical history to communicate what it is that pleases him. And the prerogative, and we spoke of this last time, that God has as God is to determine what it is that pleases him. We call that the regulative principle of worship. We, as the creatures, do not have the prerogative to determine what is acceptable to God. He is the creator. So he is the one who made us. We are his. And he's, he gives us instruction on what is acceptable to him. And when we follow those instructions, when we abide by his directives, then all goes well. If we, as Cain did, try to circumvent the, the direction that God had provided, then things do not go well. But really, there's two entirely different spiritual lineages. But you look at Genesis 3.21 in the passage I just referenced, and it, it, it communicates, number one, that sacrifice is necessary. And number two... It indicates that God had provided revelation to Adam and Eve about how he was to be approached, how he was to be worshipped. And you can be assured that Adam and Eve communicated that to Cain and Abel. How do we know that? Because the scripture tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 4 that God had regard for the sacrifice of Abel because it was pleasing to him, because he, God, declared Abel righteous, and why did he declare him righteous? Because his sacrifice was pleasing to God. And so we, we know by looking at Hebrews 11, we know at the information that God had communicated to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.21 that the, the Lord had made very specific how he was to be approached. And that covering required sacrifice 
life for life. All of that is really what's encapsulated on the bottom of page one. When I talk about the two religions, that may seem like an odd thing to say, but if you look at Cain, Cain brought an offering, really the fruit of his own labors, the, an offering of the, the fruit of the ground, something that he himself had cultivated. And if we compare the language of what it is that Cain offered and what Abel offered, Cain's offering was simply something out of that fruit of the ground. Abel's offering was of the firstlings of the flock and the fat portions thereof, the first and the best. And most importantly, it was commensurate with what God had revealed to his mom and dad, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3.21 with providing the covering that was required for them to be uh, able to approach God and so that their shame would be taken away. So you've got really a religion which pervades much of the culture that we live in, and that is a culture of self-justification. That's Cain. Cain was providing what he thought was a good thing to do. You know the scripture, there's a way that seems right to a man, and the end thereof is death. We, we were entirely capable of engineering any number of ways that please us to approach God, but unless it's what God has specifically directed and determined for us, then we're going entirely contrary to what pleases him, and in fact, we're offending his holy character. But if you look, if you were to talk, as, as, as we often do to people, and, uh, and say, why is it that you think you have a place in heaven? In many cases, they would say, well, I, I've lived a good life. I've done more good than bad. I've kept the Ten Commandments, whatever the, that means to them. Most of them can't even list maybe three or four of the Ten Commandments, much less understand what they really mean. But they are justifying themselves. Cain was justifying himself. Abel had no attempt to justify himself. He was abiding specifically by what God had directed and what had been revealed to his mom and dad, Adam and Eve. And he was coming in obedience and offering a sacrifice that God said is righteous. And it's God's prerogative, of course, to say this pleases me. And God's decision, number one, we read this in in, in, uh, Genesis 4, and we, of course, it's ratified in Hebrews 11, verse 4, God determined what Abel did was righteous. And so that was the judicial determination that God had made. But then you've got two lines of humanity, and this could not be more important. In Abel, you've got a line of righteousness, and in Cain, you've got essentially the seed of the serpent. You remember in Genesis 3.15, the, the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, the, the promise that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Uh, you, you remember that? That's the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. And there were two lineages, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the seed of righteousness. Cain is the seed of the serpent. And Abel is the seed of the woman that ultimately, uh, he, his life was taken, but we'll see uh, very soon, that Seth would be the one through whom the Messiah would come, certainly would not come through Cain. So you've got two spiritual lineages, entirely different spiritual lineages, one of unbelief, Cain, and one of God's promise of what it is that pleases him. First John 3, this is on page 2 of your notes. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So really you've got two humanities, the, the children of God and the children of the devil. And it's evident. It's obvious. Well, how is it obvious? 
Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. And you remember what it was that the sacrifice that Cain made, the Lord had no regard for. But the the sacrifice that Abel made was righteous before God. That was God's determination. So there you have the, the very clear indication that you've got two different lines of people. And then secondly, nor the one who does not love his brother. And as we'll see, Cain obviously did not love his brother. He murdered his brother in premeditated murder. So you've got a, a, a stark difference between two lines of humanity. Abel, a, a line of godliness, and Cain, a line of evil and wickedness. And, and really, this, this is so where the New Testament provides much needed uh, clarification of what we read in the early chapters of Genesis. Well, one might say, well, it, it, Cain simply um, had a, a whim about what it is that would, would please God. Uh, he made this determination. Um, it's important to note that Cain didn't believe nothing. He had convictions in his mind. He believed that his own works would be satisfactory to God. That's why he simply brought something out of the fruit of his own labors. And Cain did not trust in his own endeavors. Uh, He accepted the promise that God had made, the methodology by which God would be approached and offered a sacrifice in direct obedience to that and was determined to be righteous. So they had different religions. One was a religion of self-justification, works, autonomy before God, and the other one is a religion of subservience to the righteous God and obedience to his determination about how he would be approached. Really, that humanity falls in those two categories today. A genuine believer realizes that God will be approached as he will be approached. How do we approach God? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can come to the Father but through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. And, and, and so we've got this, this stark contrast between how people want to approach God. A true believer, one who's been regenerated, one who's elect in the sovereign choice of God, uh, will approach God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other one will attempt to approach God, if at all, through whatever mechanism that they determine is pleasing in their own sight. But these are the two religions that you see with Cain and Abel. They both had a faith. They both had a religion. Hebrews 11.4, by faith, very important words there, by, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Then notice what it goes on to say, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Who made that testimony? God made the testimony. God had regard for, for Abel's sacrifice. The testimony was God's determination. God testifying about his gifts. And, and really, isn't that the most important thing? Not whether we think we're pleasing God, but what does he say about us? And does God say that we're righteous? Does God uh, attribute to us the righteousness of Christ? If, you were to, if I were to ask you that question, what would your answer be? And, and your answer hopefully would be, yes, I, I, God determined that I am righteous because I have obeyed the, the command of the gospel to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ to come to God himself through the strictly through the merit of Jesus Christ. I have no merit of my own. I only have demerit. And so I'm approaching God in obedience to the gospel promise as he has provided it through the Redeemer, through Jesus Christ, my substitute. 
And, and so I, I, I'm coming exactly as God has promised, as God has directed that I come. And, and so this, this next paragraph simply reinforces what I said a moment ago, that Adam and Eve had revelation. They didn't have all of the, the totality of revelation that we have, of course, with the entirety of Scripture, but God had made it very clear to them how, the, how he was to be approached and, and how he was to be satisfied. So they, they didn't have a lot of information, but they had everything they needed. And that is that I, I God, will be approached through sacrifice, uh, through shed blood, uh, through a sacrifice that is pleasing to me. And all of this really goes to this very fundamental doctrine of justification by faith. This is the essence of what it means to be a true believer. It's really the line of demarcation of the Reformation. It was the rediscovery. There were several solas. You remember this? We covered this several months ago. Uh, but sola fide, by faith alone. Uh, and, and so justification is by faith alone. Um, the Orthodox, at least in their view, Orthodox Catholic doctrine, to the extent that someone knows what that doctrine is, would be that someone who claims that they are justified by faith alone is anathema. And, and so they have already determined that they are rejecting the means by which God says he will be approached. God will only be approached by justification by faith alone, faith in his promise that God has provided a redeemer. So if we go to the top of page three of the notes, and, and I think it's, it's apparent, hopefully it is by now, that some of this may seem uh, very basic, and, and it's, it, it's just helpful to remember that here in the early chapters of Genesis, God is providing... In, in, in clear description, what it is that we need to know, and it's unpacked throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, you may recall, I made this, this point last time, that the Pentateuch was written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when Israel was in exile. Uh, and so uh, they had been in bondage for centuries. They didn't know what they needed to know in order to be the people of God. And so God, in his sovereign pleasure, gave them five books under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Pentateuch, the Torah, to tell them everything they needed to know uh, so that they could be the people of God. And, and so we have this, this in Genesis, uh, the, the, the springboard, so to speak, that will be ultimately unpacked in the rest of Scripture. That's why Genesis is so fundamental. But, uh, but here you have Abel, a sinner, and how can a sinner go before a holy God and be declared righteous? And the answer to that, Abel was corrupt. Uh, Abel, uh, along with his mom and dad, fell. Uh, remember we talked about this last time. Uh, all mankind, descending from Adam and Eve uh, by ordinary generation, sinned in Adam and fell with Adam in his first transgression. And so entered into an estate of sin and misery, every single one of us without exception. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. There's none that's good. So Abel was not righteous in his own estate. Uh, he was a sinner. He was lost. Uh, but how was he saved? He was saved by coming on the basis of what God said, here's how I will be approached. And that answer was also available to Cain. The, the offer, it's it just like when, when, when you go and you speak to your friend or, or you go do some open-air evangelism or you're handing someone a tract, you're, you're extending and offer to them of how they can be made righteous before a holy God. Cain had that, that offer that was extended to him. We'll, we'll look at that. God extended enormous grace 
to Cain. If you do well, you will be accepted. But sin is crouching at the door, and it wants to have dominion over you. It wants to master you. You have to master sin. You have to reject sin. But Cain had uh, the offer that was extended to him to be right with God, but he rejected it. It was very obvious that he rejected it. But Hebrews 11.4 says that the voice of Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. How does it speak? Because the promise of the gospel that's articulated in Genesis 3.15 was adopted, embraced wholesale by Abel. He, he took it to heart, and he lived it out as long as he had days on earth before Cain took his life in an act of premeditated murder. But he still speaks. An example. Later, you have the testimony of Abraham, Genesis 15. We have numerous examples, but this one just seemed obvious to me. You had a promise that was made to Abraham that his lineage would be an enormous lineage, a lineage that you couldn't even count, like the, the sands on the seashore, etc. And you remember Abraham, or Abram at that point, was advanced in years. He was married to Sarah. She was also advanced to years. Neither of them were of childbearing age, so to speak. And so, humanly speaking, Abram is looking at himself. He's looking at his dear wife, Sarah, and he's saying, I just don't think that's going to happen. And humanly speaking, I think we would all come to the same conclusion if we were in his shoes. But God had made a promise. What did God do? God took him outside at night, and he showed him this beautiful panorama of stars and and said count the stars look at the stars and you can only imagine what a brilliant night that must have been one of those nights when you just probably could reach out and feel like you could touch those stars they're so bright and they're shining there abraham looked at that promise and if you look at genesis 15 verse 6 he believed in the lord and he god reckoned it to him as righteousness that's where He was adopting the same faith that Abel had. Abel had a promise that if you approach me as I will be approached, if you have faith in the sacrifice that will ultimately come, if you realize that death is required to bring life, if you realize that you cannot save yourself, if you realize that you need a Redeemer, and there is a Redeemer that God is going to provide for you and embrace that promise wholesale, you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Abram, uh, or me, Abel uh, adopted that promise. He embraced that promise and was declared to be righteous. Abram also embraced that same promise of God. That's the essence of the gospel. There is a promise that is made. God is making a promise that you can have eternal life. And if you come on, on the terms that I'm providing to you, I guarantee you will have eternal life. If you try it any other way, The outcome will be disastrous. It will only be eternal judgment in hell. So there is no middle ground. But Abel embraced the promise. Abram embraced the promise. And so how did did Abel's voice still keep echoing down uh, through the centuries, through the millennia of biblical history? The gospel promise. It's It's the same voice that we hear today. When you hear the gospel, you're essentially hearing Abel speaking to you that there is a promise, and if you embrace it, you will be right with God, just like I was made right with God. That same promise is offered today. Well, if you look over the top of page four, modern-day promise, Paul, the apostle, and to Ephesians, at church at Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. 
not through not through your own works, not through your own offering of, of whatever means makes sense to you, but through faith. In that, not of yourselves. That's what Cain was doing. He was doing it of himself. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one could boast. Cain was boasting in, in his own prowess. Cain was boasting in what he had cultivated. And people do that today. They, 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 they come to God and say, look what I'm bringing you. Look what I, I have to offer you. And, and God says, I don't care what you have to offer me. It's what I'm offering you. And if you embrace that, then you will be saved. You can bring me nothing but your own sin. That's the only thing that we bring to God is our own iniquity, our own transgression. But Abel understood that. And Paul is saying that it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So that's the essence of what God does. Salvation is all of God. We call that monergism. It is from first to, to last entirely a work of God so that there is absolutely no room for boasting. No, look at me. Look what I've done. It's, it's the most humbling reality in all eternity to, to realize that God has brought us into a saved estate uh, through his dear son at the precious cost of, of the shed blood of his own, Jesus, his own son, Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us to the passage where we are today in Genesis 4. We're not going to get all through the notes today, and that's why I just make you aware that we save these notes and we'll pick this up, Lord willing, next time. But Genesis 4 or 5... What was the response that Abel had, or pardon me, Cain had uh, to uh, the, the Lord's determination? Uh, well, if we look at Genesis 4, um, Cain brought an offering of the Lord of the fruit of the ground, verse 3, and Abel brought of the first things of the flock and the fat portions. The Lord's determination in verse 4, the Lord had regard or respect for Abel and his offering. Verse 5, but for Cain and for his offering. You'll notice it's Cain and his offering. It's not just the offering, it's the one who brought the offering. And so it's not, here it is, it's what you bring represents how you are going to approach God. God is saying, I reject the offering, and furthermore, I reject you because you're the one that brought the offering. And so, but for Cain, uh, the Lord had no regard. Uh, And so what was his response? Cain became, if you read the King James, wroth. Um, I guess it's like the way they would say wrathful. Uh, But Cain became very angry. He was hostile towards God, and his countenance fell. This is the same response that you get today when you share the gospel uh, with an unbelieving person who either has determined that in his or her mind that God either doesn't exist or isn't any part of their life, and then especially when you tell them that There is only one way by which a person can be made acceptable before God, that there aren't multiple means, that you can't determine your own path, that you really do need a Savior, that you can't be saved on your own merit, you have no merit. And what kind of a response do you typically get? Is it it a smile? I mean, generally you don't. Generally you get an unhappy expression. Well, who are you to tell me what I need to be saved? And the answer, of course, is... If it were me telling you what you need, then you'd be in trouble. I'm not, it's, it's what God is saying that, that is required by which you will be saved. But the response is often hostile. And, and those who engage in evangelism know this response all too, all, all too well. It's, it's a hostile response. This is the seed of the serpent re- responding to the promise of the gospel. But Cain resented the very notion that he needed a savior. And you, you see that today, don't you? I mean, you see exactly that. Well, who are you? I, 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 what do you mean I'm lost? What, I'm lost from what? 
Um, you mean God won't accept me? Well, uh, you know, what do you, in, in the litany of responses that you get, it, it, all of this is embraced in the anger that Cain showed towards God when God rejected his offering. But God will extend grace to him because he says Cain is, is very angry and his countenance fell. And then verse 6, the Lord engages in questions with Cain to draw him out, to help explain to him what he needs to do to be right with him. But he does, he, he, he starts to draw him out. And, and in verse 7, he says, if you do well, uh, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is, is crouching at the door and is desirous for you, but you must master it. The, the Lord is saying to Cain, why are you angry? You're angry at God. Why are you angry at God? God is coming to you, offering a means by which you can be made right with him. God is bringing to you a means by which your sins can be washed, by which you can be constituted righteous. God is coming to you, offering you the prospect of eternal life, of peace with God, that the enmity that exists between you and God can be laid aside, that you can have peace with God. And you hate me for that? That's, that's essentially the response that you get from unsaved people. They, no, I don't need to have peace with God I, if, if, if they don't reject, if they don't accept the gospel. I don't need that. I'm okay. I'm good. You, you hear that all too much. No, you're not good. None of us are good. And when you say that, that irritates unbelievers. They, well, I am good. Who are you to tell me I'm not good? But that, that was Cain's response, was anger. His countenance fell. His, his visage reflected the fact that he was extremely unhappy with the fact that God wasn't pleased with him. And, and so as we look at this, this unpacking of the decline, the spiritual decay that took place in Cain's life, it, it falls into four categories. Number one, sin is crouching in verse uh, 6 and 7. Sin is striking in verse 8. All of this is in your notes. Sin is convicted by God in verses 9 and following. And uh, there are cons- sin can be conquered uh, in verse 16. And that's a word of application to all of us. But first of all, sin is crouching. This is at the bottom of page 4 of your notes. And this is God asking a very probing question to a hostile, angry Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? And, and there is an appeal of God to grace here. There, there is grace even here that God is extending. God comes to him and, and is drawing him out or attempting to draw him out. And, and he offers him advice uh, that ultimately will lead at least to an offer of the gospel. If You, you, you must do well. What you, he, God is telling him you're on a path that will not bring you to right relations with me. Um, he, he, he's bringing to, to Cain's attention that, that he's on the wrong path. And he, he's showing that out of grace to him, not, not necessarily redeeming grace, but a, but a common grace that, that you need to know. You need to know that you're on a bad path. I'm, I'm reminded so often of when we go to the abortion clinic and, and my, the, the folks that really occupy my heart more than anyone else are the escorts. They, they hear the gospel over and over and over. And I can't tell you how many times I, I say to them, don't harden your heart. You're hearing the gospel over and over. And I often will pray for them in loud enough terms so that they can hear my prayer. God, would you please soften the heart of this man, this woman, 
God, would you please soften their heart? They're on a, a, a trajectory that will lead them to judgment. God, would you please not allow them to continue to harden their heart? But they do that. They keep hardening their heart to the gospel. And, and grace is being extended to Cain. Why are you angry? And, and that's often, a, and you can go to someone who's an unbeliever and say, and they, they reject the gospel, it, it, why are you angry? They're really not angry with you. They're angry with God. They're angry with the, the proposition that there is absolute truth. They're angry with the proposition that they can't be the, the determination of their own future, that I am the, the captain of my own soul. They, 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 they reject that, and so they become angry. You happen to be in direct line of sight for their anger, and so you experience that hostility, and, and ultimately Abel would be in the line of sight of Cain. But the top of page 5, despite all of this, the transgression that was there and, and Cain's failure, there is still a, a fatherly concern of God for Cain, as, as he says, if you do well, in verse 7, will you not be accepted? There is, are you sure you don't want to change your, your approach here, Cain? Are you, you sure that you don't want to reconsider what you're doing? There is a way that you can be accepted. He doesn't dismiss him out of line completely. He does reject his offering, and he rejects Cain, but, but he doesn't just stop there. He says there is a way that you can be made right. Why are you angry? And, and it's, 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 it's a good approach, I think, that we can take with our unsafe friends, that God is offering an answer for you for, for, for the most important questions that you can ever ask for all eternity. And, and it's this offer of abiding grace to those who oppose him in sin. And, and I'm reminded there is this hymn, it's one of my favorites, by Joseph Hart. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. That's, that's the, the essence of the, the grace that is extended to men and women and boys and girls who really need to have eternal life. Jesus stands ready and, and, and come to him. You, you can't fix your own life up first. Nobody ever does that. And, but it comes sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus came not for the well, but for the sick. He came to redeem those who were broken. He came to redeem those who were lost. And, and so the, the, the God, that God is coming to Cain. He says, if you do well, you can be accepted. That turned out not to be the case. We know that. But along with that offer, there is a warning. And again, it's a template for our evangelistic endeavors. My friend, there is an offer, but I must tell you, that, that I must share with you the warning of God. I must let you know that there are dire consequences if you reject God's offer. And, and so that's exactly what God is doing with Cain, is he's extending an offer, but he, he issues an extremely sobering warning to him. And there are a number of points about this warning. The, the first is that sin is an awesome power that will hold you in bondage from which there can be no deliverance outside of the work of God himself. It begins there. Sin is crouching at the door and it longs to, to master you, to completely dominate you. That's what happens to an unbeliever. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace might increase? For an unbeliever, they just continue in sin. But for the believer, that bondage has been broken. We don't have to sin. We do. 
But, but the, the glorious truth is that sin does not have to have dominion over us. That's the, the, the remarkable truth that we need to embrace. But, but the warning begins by saying there is a, a threat to your, your soul that you need to be aware of. And it is a, a crouching enemy. It is right at the door. And it is not a friend. It is a foe. And it will ruin you. And it will ruin your life. And it will ruin your eternal future. And it is ready to pounce on you and destroy you. That's the warning that God is giving to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. And number two, that it is a force that wants to dominate us. Sin is crouching. Number, number three, Jonathan Edwards makes this point down at the bottom of page five. We can often and do forget about our own sins, but God has a ledger, so to speak, and no sins are ever forgotten before God. For the believer... All of our sins are cast into that sea, uh, that sea that was created by the, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as an atonement for our sin, the expiation for our sin. When, when he said to Telestai, paid in full, God does not hold those sins against us. But for the unbeliever, those sins are never washed away. They just continue to mount up and up and up. And the, 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 the iniquity, the guilt, and the, and the eternal devastation just continues to mount but, but God's justice never goes away. And so the guilt of sin places each one of us under this threat of God's wrath. He writes, Edwards does, their sins have already kindled the fire of hell. Their damnation is prepared for them and is waiting for them. Top of page 6. So Genesis 4-7, it, sin is like a predatory animal ready to pounce. Alexander McLaren says, once a man has done a wrong thing, it has an awful power of attracting him and making him hunger to do it again. The point that he's making is that when we engage in sin, it it absolutely weakens us to resist that same sin in the future. In fact, it enables us to become more and more subservient to the sin that entangled us to begin with, and it just draws us down and eventually it just completely dominates our lives unless we're born again into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that sin just keeps wrapping tentacles around. That's what happens to unsaved people is the sins that they engage in makes it more and more difficult to resist in the future. And they just become absolutely in bondage to it because of its controlling power. And that's why it's impossible to dabble with sin. Sin, you can't play with sin. It, it, it's 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 a a dangerous thing, and this is a word. By the way, we'll get to this, but this word not only speaks to Cain and and his lineage, but it speaks to us as believers. How should we view sin? We have to see sin for exactly what it is. We we battle sin daily, and in, in Romans seven, you know, woe is me who will rescue me from the bondage of the sin. Paul said, as a believer, I think virtually every. Reform commentator would take the point of view that Paul writes Romans 7 from the standpoint of a believer. It's a battle. It's a battle. Sin can't be played with. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to master you, to dominate you. That, that truth is every bit as true for a believer. Sin would love to have control of your life. It doesn't have to, and for a believer it won't. But the, the sober warning is, brothers and sisters, until we hate sin... We, we, we won't ever see it for the, the, the danger that it is. It, it, we cannot dabble with sin. It is so dangerous. It, it has enormous power. 
Number five, God warns us that without with our having become sinners, the decisive matter in our lives is whether we'll be slaves to sin or whether we will be redeemed from his guilt and power. And the answer, of course, is later in that same paragraph, the only answer is coming to Christ. That's the only way to break the bondage is by coming to Christ and, and bowing the knee before Christ and being made free. And those, those, those chains can be taken off, and they are taken off. For the believer, the, the chains of sin's dominion are broken. That does not mean that we do not continue in sin. We do, but we don't have to. Sin no longer has dominion over us. The sin no longer has mastery over a believer. So the first thing is sin is crouching at the door. We have to see the, the gravity of the sin. The second is then it, it moves to the actual uh, thing that took place. Uh, sin is striking. And, and here in, in, in chapter 4, verse 8, we see the, the, the lineage of sin in Cain's life. And Cain told Abel his brother. The Septuagint and some of the early translations actually have the language that Cain said, let's go out into the field. That's not in my translation. It may be in yours. But the point is that it was not a whim on Cain's part. This was premeditated. Cain lured his brother out into the field. What's interesting is how often the word brother is used in this section in verses 5 through 16. And and Moses writes this as he does under the inspiration of the Spirit to show what a travesty it is. This is not just anyone that is going to be murdered in cold blood. This is his own brother. And that's why I mean, the quotation earlier for 1 John 3, by this the, 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 the children of God and the children of the devil are evident. The one who practices righteousness is a child of God, but the one who does not is not. And, and if one who does not love his brother cannot be a child of God. And if ever, if ever there was one who did not love his brother, it was Cain. Cain took his brother out in the field and murdered him in cold blood, premeditated murder. And, and so it, it, it has sin striking. It, it's, it, at this point, Cain had hardened his heart. Cain had absolutely emboldened himself. At the top of page 7, Michael Barrett makes this comment. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Cain refused the grace that God had offered freely to him. Sin now takes its course and brings forth death. James 1. Cain's hatred against his righteous brother showed that he was the seed of the serpent. This is such a tragic section, but ultimately the good news is, just to anticipate what we'll see maybe in a couple of weeks, is that Abel, a child of God, went home to be with the Lord, but the promise of Genesis 3.15 was not extinguished. Why was that? It certainly would not be coming through Cain. How would that promise be perpetuated? Well, first of all, no promise of God is ever rendered null and void. We begin there. God's purposes are never rendered ineffectual. So how is it, since Abel was murdered, that God would ultimately bring the gospel to bear through a Redeemer in, in, in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15? The answer, just to jump ahead a few weeks, Seth, another child, another child. And it's so tragic, isn't it? When Eve gave birth to Cain, you remember the name that she gave me, what it meant? I've gotten it. 
And she had just heard the promise of Genesis 3.15 earlier that there would be a seed that would bring deliverance from sin, the very sin that had made her distant from God and estranged from God. And when Cain came into her life as her first child, her first response was to name Cain, I've got it. And she thought she did. And any mom probably in her position may have come to the same conclusion, could not have been further from the truth. God would ultimately honor that promise, but it would not be through Cain. Well, I'm going to stop here, and you can see we made it through page 7. So keep your your notes, and we'll pursue this. But I'm, I'm unpacking this decline, this spiritual decline in the life of Cain, because it has enormous teaching and application for us as believers as to the gravity of sin and the nature of our hearts. So let me just stop here and and kind of dog ear your page, so to speak, on page 7, and we'll pick this up, Lord willing, next time.